If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open them with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 17, and I'll be reading in just a moment from verse 17 to verse 25. That's the section of Scripture where we find ourselves in our sermon series through the Gospel according to Matthew. I'm going to read the text, and I'm going to give what I think is one central big idea as to what is being communicated in this passage, as I often do. But as I'm preparing you to, do, to receive this text of Scripture, I think it might be helpful by way of introduction to realize that um, we all live in a world that has, in the last couple hundred years, um, gone through a, a mindset shift. That in such a way, you and I might not realize this, but we are living in a world that fundamentally views the world and ourselves different than the way a lot of people did, especially people in the days of the scriptures that we're reading from. To to put this as simple as possible, uh, it's been summarized by one theologian, Drawing a blank on his name, um, Al Mohler, yeah, Al Mohler. Al Mohler has said that for a long time, the problem of the world has been what's inside here. That the line between good and evil passes right down the middle of a man. And that for the Christian fundamental understanding of the problems of this world are found within And that the solution to the problems of this world is a message that comes from outside. Something outside of us is going to come and transform the brokenness within. That summarizes the philosophical, ideological mindset of Christian faith. We we need that basic understanding to understand all of the Bible, I think. However, over the last couple hundred years, the mindset has been the exact opposite. The mindset has been that the problems of the world are outside. The problems are society and certain factors that want to negatively influence who you truly are on the inside, and therefore the solution is only found by looking within. I think this is one of the most profound things I've ever heard in my life, And I think it is worth meditation for the rest of your life to realize that fundamental difference about the reality of this world and who you are. Carl Truman has recently written a book, came out in November, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He explains these kind of concepts in very similar ways. He says that the world formerly had an understanding of a given order and meaning, and therefore we must discover something outside of us in order to have meaning and fullness and life. But the modern world, the understanding of it is that it is filled with raw material and we, from inside of us, must create and give the world outside of us its meaning and purpose. Historical cultures would direct individuals outward to the communal society to help them understand their identity and their purpose and a sense of satisfaction. Whereas the culture of authenticity, the culture of our day, 
We must find our own way and not conform to any models that are imposed upon us. This is the height of evil in the modern world. Some sort of outside norm, some sort of social custom telling you who you should be. And therefore, this has all kinds of implications. Let me give you one specific example. Therapy and the old way of thinking, the traditional way of thinking, is helping a patient. If you're a pastor, you're a priest, you're going to help them grasp the nature of the community around you and help you find yourself to fit within that community. Therapy today is protecting the individual from the kind of harmful stress that society is bringing upon a person to smother their individual identity and the expression of that identity. We could go on, and you'll probably hear more from this book, not only in upcoming sermons, but throughout the teaching series that we're starting to plan in the winter and spring semester Probably sometime in January, we're going to try and create a class on biblical anthropology or what it means to be a human according to the Bible and contrast that with the world. And this is just a small taste of that big idea. And so before we read this text, I want you to realize that you and I swim in a fishbowl called the modern world. And you don't even realize the waters that you're swimming in. It's like the fish going up to another fish. David Foster Wallace is one of the ones, I think, that originally gave this illustration. Says, hey, how's the water? And the other fish goes, water? What's water? That's us. Individualism is the waters that we swim in. Personal self-expression of what's in here must always be protected. And you need to realize that the text we're about to read is going to suggest, I believe, things that are offensive to that modern sense of self and society. So if you're here today and you're a Christian or a non-Christian and you find today's message particularly offensive, it perhaps might be because you have been absorbing those waters of individualism and saying, no, this authentic self should not conform to any outside pattern from the Bible, from the church, Or to put it another way, we're going to land this sermon, the goal, as we're trying to lift off in the air now and then eventually land, we want to land with the biblical practice that was just read for us in our New Testament scripture reading, church discipline. Or as my former mentor, Mark Dever said, the way to grow a healthy church is not to welcome the front door wide open. This is basically what every single church growth book says. Open wide the front door of the church. Let everybody come in. Be as welcoming as you can because everybody belongs in the community of the church. Mark Dever suggests close the front door of the church. Make it a little harder for people to become members of the church and belong. And open the back door of the church and practice church discipline. It's basically the exact opposite way of thinking if you read any church growth strategy books in the modern world because the modern church is influenced by the modern age. Open wide the front door. All are welcome to the table. Come, no matter who you are, no matter what you've been doing this last week, no matter what you think about God or Jesus or the Bible, even if you don't repent of sin, you're welcome to the table. 
Instead, here at Embassy Church, we've been preaching and saying every week as we take the Lord's Supper, if you are a baptized, repentant follower of Jesus, you are welcome. The front door is being shut before you. You are welcomed in through the blood of the Lord Jesus and him alone. So put your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you are welcome. And if you are not putting your faith and trust in Jesus, we are going to open the back door and tell you lovingly, as far as we can tell, you should not be eating the bread and the cup. There it is. That's where we want to go. And if that seems offensive, maybe if you're like, well, I'm not too offended. I've been used to hearing that. Hopefully you would understand what I mean by the world around us will find this offensive. Maybe you might feel, well, I think that might be true, but it's embarrassing. Let's look at our passage today. Let's consider these matters and realize why they are rooted in Jesus' teaching and actions himself from Matthew 26. Follow along as I read. Starting in verse 17, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and they were eating. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. And they began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Well, on the screen above me, I have tried to summarize what I believe the big idea of this passage is and its one main application. The big idea of what I think is going on in this text, at least in part, because there's more that probably could and should be said. But for today's message, let's focus on the cleansing of the old leaven during Passover. Jesus is cleansing the old leaven during the Passover meal. I think that's what's happening. The events that we were just reading and being narrated for us by Matthew has symbolic significance, deep theological and personal application to everyday lives. And our main application will be we as a church, embassy. We must firmly commit ourselves to practicing church discipline as we take the Lord's Supper together. And again, I I can understand why if you're thinking, I'm just not seeing it. I need you to pay attention. I'm going to argue my case. But I wanted to give you, before we dive into some weeds and details, that's the big idea. That's where we're going. Jesus is cleansing old leaven during a Passover meal. We should similarly cleanse out those who are professing believers that are unrepentant from the Lord's Supper. 
So let's start first with Jesus cleansing out the old leaven during the Passover meal. Look at verse 17 with me. It says right in the first few lines, now on the first day of unleavened bread. The translation here is adding words that aren't in the Greek text, and sometimes that can be disturbing. I don't think it's disturbing. It does make sense why it's been translated the way it has been, but I do want to just be honest with you the way that this text actually reads. More literally, it would be, now on the first of unleavened, that's all that's in the Greek text, now on the first of unleavened. I think one of the best translations that has tried to capture the sense of what Matthew is saying here, he does not use the word day and he does not use the word bread. I think if we understand the bigger background story from the Old Testament of unleavened bread and the Exodus, we might say this, now on the first of the unleavened things, or now when the unleavening process began. And in many ways, that was a day, and in many ways, the unleavening is talking about bread, hence the translation is fine. It's not like a bad translation. But I wanted to highlight this because it gets us started on a road to our eventual conclusion, and that is to realize that Matthew is telling us that there is an unleavening process that is beginning in our text, which then I think needs a lot of explanation, so let's go to the book of Exodus. On the screen above me, you don't have to turn there. You're free to if you'd like, but I have added these passages for quick reference for all of us to follow along. Exodus chapter 12, verses 14 and 15 give us the historical background of the unleavening process. And here's what the passage says. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Maybe a little detail that you and I have missed. If you eat bread that has leaven in it, During the Passover week, you get excommunicated, church disciplined. That's Exodus chapter 12. That's in the background to the unleavening process. I'm hoping we're already starting to see, oh, maybe there is some warrant to the big idea of Jesus cleansing and church discipline being the natural application. This seven-day feast happened every year during the first month of the year. So if you used our calendar, you would say January is the first month of our calendar year. Nisan is the first month of their calendar year. And it would be the 14th day that would be a preparation day before the first day of the Passover, which was the 15th day of the month. So in our translation, it would be January 14th is a preparation day. And January 15th would be the first day of the Passover. Jesus and his disciples are on the 14th day of Nisan. And on that day, it is a preparation day, which is why when you read our text in Matthew 26, you're like, what are we going to do to prepare? And Jesus, as you can tell, has already made some preparations. 
He's already started to get things going. He already has a guy that's planning to have the table and all of the things set in some respect. And he even calls him Mr. So-and-so. That's the literal rendering of the text. A certain man is actually, well, Mr. So-and-so. And there's all kinds of reasons as to why it may not be a specific name. We'll just forget that detail for now. Let's just realize that Jesus and the disciples are on preparation day. It's the day before the Passover. This is exactly what John's gospel says. But it starts to bleed over into the next day, which is the 15th day, because the day ends when the sun goes down and then a new day begins. So it would be kind of like they're preparing during the afternoon, they're getting things set, they're going to this guy's house, all of those details are happening, and then at midnight, that's the way we would talk, or when the sun goes down, a new day has turned over in the calendar, and it's during that time that they're having this meal. It's later in the evening. And this is part of the reason if you ever have any questions as to whether or not John's gospel disagrees with Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, the answer is no. It's just that we're not accustomed to this kind of dating and system of when one day begins and one day ends. All that to say, this is the timetable of when the first day you're supposed to remove the leaven out of the house, Exodus chapter 12, right? On the first day of the Passover, you're to remove all of the leaven out of your house, and if anyone eats of it, you shall be cut off. Now, I think the most important question we all need to make sure we're on the same page about is, well, what is leaven? If you're supposed to remove the leaven out of the house, what are you supposed to remove? And this is, I think, one of those things that growing up in church, I was given kind of mm, bad information. Leaven is not yeast. It is not the same thing as yeast. So it wasn't saying, oh, remove all those packets of yeast out of your house. Jews did not make bread by heading down to the corner market and picking up a packet of yeast. Leaven comes from the previous dough of bread, the previous loaf of bread. If you've ever made sourdough bread, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. If you've not, Google it. That's what we did last night. Thank you, Mr. Fellabom. Leaven is fermented bread. That's what leaven is. An ancient baker would pull off a bit of leavened loaf fermented bread, insert that fermented bread into a new batch of dough so that the leaven from that previous batch could permeate the rest of the new loaf. When that new dough was then leavened, the baker could pull off a bit of that dough and then put it into the next dough. This was a continual process. And this is the basics, the baking 101 that is behind the feast of unleavened bread. Once a year, Jews would expel all the leavened bread from their homes. And then, for a week, they would only eat unleavened bread. And then they would start the new year with a new leaven. Do you get new leaven by going to the corner store and buying yeast? No, you get new leaven by letting some dough sit out for a week or so. And then it would pick up and absorb all of the airborne spores and then it would start to ferment and then leaven would be passed on from one bread to another bread to another bread for the entire year. And then the whole thing would start over on the 15th day of Nisan during Passover. By letting that dough sit out and then being passed on to the other, we have now a symbol. It's not just about bread making 101. This is about continuity. It is about unleavened bread being a symbol of one thing coming to an end and a new thing starting. 
at the very first Passover in Exodus that we just read, Exodus chapter 12, 13, and 14, Israel was supposed to remove all the old leaven, all of the old leaven that was made where? In Egypt. It's, it's more than just, oh, you guys are going to be in a big hurry, and so you're not going to have time to bake bread, so what you need to do is get some power protein bars. Or this is going to be about fast food delivery kind of meals while you're on the go. Practically, I do think that's what's going on. He actually says that in Exodus chapter 12, if you read the details, but it's, it's more than that. It's a whole symbol about all of Egypt, the old way of life. It's, it's done, and a new day and a new covenant is being birthed when they set, are set free from the tyranny of slavery and are given a relationship with God at Mount Sinai. They're beginning with a whole new leaven, a whole new people. So then when we get to the New Testament, this symbolism is used by Jesus and the New Testament authors to talk about a couple things. First, Jesus uses this to talk about teaching. Because a teaching is like leaven. It's passed on from one disciple to another, from one family to another, from one generation to another. So Matthew 13.33 is our next text. This is a parable during the series of parables in the very center of Matthew's gospel. And in Matthew 13, Jesus says, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. In these parables, in Matthew 13, Jesus says that the power of leaven, or we might say the power of Jesus' teaching, the gospel, it is the power to transform the whole world. And in this one short little verse, we have Jesus using leaven as that symbol. The kingdom is like three measures of leaven. It's put into a lump of dough, and then it will go into the entire lump. In this case, this symbol of leaven is quite positive. But if you read in Matthew chapter 16, leaven is used in the exact opposite way about something quite negative. So on the next slide, you'll see Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 6. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we didn't bring any bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you do not have bread? You guys are missing the point. When I'm talking about the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees, I'm not talking about baking. I'm talking about teaching. And this is what he makes clear. If you drop your eyes down, you'll see in verse 12, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is another kind of leaven. It's teaching, but it's a negative teaching. The Pharisees' teaching was rooted, as we know, from oral tradition. So therefore, it was passed down from person to person, from family to family, and from generation to generation. And Jesus is warning his disciples that as they're going about doing their business and their ministry, they need to beware of a teaching, of a tradition, of an oral tradition from the scribes and Pharisees. And he's saying, don't accept that. That's a rotten kind of leaven. And it will not bless the world and transform it like the gospel. It will destroy it. So we should observe that the symbol of leaven is used to refer to teaching. But in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, our, 
Our next passage you'll see is that leaven is also about the way people live. Because teaching is not so distant and far off from the way you and I live every day. How we think and the way that we understand the world is going to inform the way you live. Doctrine is not at odds with lifestyle and, and, and therefore there's an intimate relationship and so leaven is used in both ways. And so you'll see here, leaven of the, the leaven of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 12, 1, Jesus is speaking here and he says it is hypocrisy. So not just teaching, but it could be talk about talking about behavior or character. And if we put all this together, here's what I think is going on in the time of Jesus. Over the centuries, the, the corrupt leaven of the Jewish people was being passed down from generation to generation, and a new day needed to be dawn. The old ways of thinking and living needed to be cut off, and a new loaf needed to be started. Therefore, one way to describe the ministry and message of Christianity of Jesus himself is that Jesus is a new lump of bread. He's the new loaf. He's starting us anew with a new covenant. He's starting a brand new batch of teaching and a way of living that he wants passed on from disciple to disciple, from century to century. And this leaven is not just another oral tradition. This is a leaven that comes from heaven. It surpasses the oral tradition of the scribes and Pharisees, and it does not depend on their old ways of thinking. And I think all of this helps us better understand Matthew 26. Jesus is clearly coming during Passover week to bring the final Passover to its climactic ultimate fulfillment. And it starts with, as Matthew highlighting, the first of the unleavening process. The first of the unleavened bread, as it says in your ESV Bibles. With this feast in Matthew 26, Jesus is cleansing and cutting off the old leaven of the Jewish community. Not just the leaven of Egypt, but the corruption of the people of Israel. That leaven that has seduced them from the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Look down with me at your text again, Matthew 26, Starting in verse 20, and I think you'll hopefully see that Jesus is not just having a Passover meal and becoming the new symbolic Passover lamb. He is. But here, on the emphasis of the unleavening process that's beginning, he's emphasizing the cleansing through this conversation about betrayal. Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at a table with the twelve, which means that you should not get that famous painting. Who's it by? The Lord's Supper table? Which one? Leonardo da Vinci. Yes. So you know that picture, that famous artwork of Leonardo da Vinci where they're all sitting at a table behind and Jesus is at the center and there's all these different faces. It's a, it's a beautiful painting, wonderful, all for art and all that. Terrible painting. They were not sitting on chairs at a table. That's the way we would eat uh, they would be reclining, as it says in our text. They're, they're laying down on an elbow. There's a U-shaped kind of uh, seating arrangement. And so they're reclining at a low table with the 12. Verse 21 says, and as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, if you know anything about the Passover, this is not a normal line. Jesus, as the like host of this meal, is not supposed to like all of a sudden start getting into betrayal talk. There's a whole process of Jewish tradition for how they kept the Passover. This is not it. This is new. 
And this is what I mean by him entering into that ceremony and reorienting it for his purpose of this new kind of Passover, this new kind of leaven. And he does this by saying, guess what, guys? I'm about to drop a big bomb right now. One of you is going to betray me. And so what's the response in verse 22? They were sorrowful. Everybody is not like, oh, yeah, it was, it was Judas. Well, of course, we all know. That's not the scene. The scene here is that nobody is aware of what Judas is about to do. And the entire community is like, no way. They're all extremely grieved at the very thought of betrayal. And so they started to talk amongst one another. Well, certainly it couldn't be me. Maybe it's going to be you. I don't know. No, no, not me. And so they start saying, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Then Jesus says this. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I want to return to this point because I think this is master Jedi teaching from Jesus. This is like off the charts, spiritual ninja move. And I think we can learn a lot from this about the way we practice church discipline together. But Jesus saying this phrase, who has dipped his hand in the dish? You just need to realize on a very practical level, all of them have dipped their hand in the dish. At this point of the meal, each of them would have gotten the bitter herbs and started to dip their hand into the dish. More on that in a minute. Verse 25, Judas, who would betray him. See, the, the surprise was already out earlier in Matthew's gospel, and here it's made clear again. We know it's Judas. And he answered, is it I, Rabbi? And then Jesus responds and says, you're the one that said so. Your word's not mine. That's the meaning of those last words from Jesus. So I'm hoping that you will start to understand the big idea of this story. Jesus is cleansing the old leaven during the Passover by talking about the betrayal of Judas and then eventually the betrayal of all the disciples. We know Judas is the ultimate betrayer and the symbol of betrayal. He was infected, we know, from what? He was infected from the old way of Israel, the old way of believing and living. He was infected by the, the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. Whether or not we know for sure the motives from Judas, we do know that he took money. That's what it says just above our passage, doesn't it? For 30 pieces of silver, Judas sold Jesus out and just like the Pharisees, we know that the Pharisees are described as being lovers of money. And Judas is willing to give Jesus up for simply 30 pieces of silver. So was it the love of money? Was it revolutionary zeal? Was it a, a difference in understanding of what the kingdom should be like? The details aren't extremely clear as to the motives behind Judas. But here they all are at the Passover feast, reclining at the table, it's less than 24 hours from when Jesus himself would be the slaughtered Passover lamb, taking away the sins of his people. But before we get to any of that, Matthew 26 highlights that a feast of unleavened bread and unleavening, a purging of the loaf is happening. The old leaven is being cast out and a new leaven will begin. 
And it all is centered around the acceptance or rejection of Jesus. Judas, we know specifically, will be cast out. He is the symbol of that little leaven that could leaven the whole lump. But as we saw in our text, Jesus doesn't point him out. In fact, all of the disciples will be tested before Jesus dies. And as we know famously, Peter betrays Jesus when he is asked about whether or not he is a disciple. And in other words, all of the disciples are going through a purging and cleansing when Jesus asks and states, well, whoever dips their hand in the bowl will be the one that betrays me. So let's look back, like I said, at that text, that specific part. And let's think, how does Jesus do this? Does he roll up into this Passover feast and drop that bomb of truth on them by saying, Judas, he's the one. And he just points him out. He, he knows, clearly. I, I think that there's no doubt that Judas is the one that Jesus is well aware of being the one that's going to betray him. He could have. Why didn't he do it that way? I was riding in an airplane to um, South Carolina last year, sitting next to a woman, just me and her, um, next to each other in the aisle. And she was just at a, a wedding for her son, and we got chatting, and I honestly was not into the mood to chat. I was extremely tired, and uh, sure enough, this ended up being one of those single-serving friends on the airplane where we hung out together and chat the whole time. And I learned all kinds of things about her life. She obviously found out that I was a pastor. That didn't take long, you know, those early questions. Well, what do you do? Well, I'm, I'm a pastor. And you never know how people are going to respond, but she ended up telling me all kinds of stories. They were fascinating about what her experience in church had been like. One of them was about how she stopped going to church for a while because she went to a church. And this is in like Vermont, she said, kind of small town, little community. And the pastor is getting up there and right before the Lord's Supper, he starts to exercise church discipline. And he does so by saying these words. All of you are welcome to the table, except for the one of you wearing that plaid shirt, you know who you are, the blue one. You were caught cheating on your wife, weren't you? And that's how he goes on to fence the table. And she said she was kind of appalled, and I was like, yeah! This is not the way of Jesus. This is, this is not necessarily the way that you go in and just start hammering people out right in front of each other to say, Calling you out, Judas. Instead, it's stated more as a question. Even though there's not a literal question, it's more of a, hmm, one of you is not faithful. And instead of just pointing out the one and everybody turning and being a pointer, all of them are thinking, maybe it could be me. This is what I'm talking about. This is master level kind of teaching. Jesus wants this cleansing process to infect the whole lump. He wants everybody to think that the line between good and evil is right down the middle of my soul. And that there's no sense of me being like, yeah, you're the bad one. Me? Oh, I could never do that. 
I read this horrendous news headline yesterday, and I'm not going to give you the de details. It was graphic. It was about some lady that's in prison in Terre Haute, Indiana, and that her, her death sentence is being pushed off because of some COVID details. And so then it's a news headline because now it's going to be up to Joe Biden, president-elect, to eventually like decide what's going to happen. I don't know if you saw the news headline, but I was reading this news headline, and I was reading about the description of why this woman was on death row and about to be executed. And I was like, oh, you know, one of those moments. And I'll just confess. There was this sense of like, that's evil, because it was. It was just one of those like, she kind of deserves like something serious. And immediately I kind of was thinking about this sermon because I was like, oh wait, that's in me too. Like, why am I in this posture of thinking that's for the really bad people, but you know, I could never do something like that. It's the very spirit that Jesus is after by going about the meal in the manner that he does. He does not point fingers. He doesn't yell and scream. He cleanses by speaking the truth with love. He cleanses so that the entire community can be aware that all of us need to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and realize we are all Judases in some way. So friends, I think we should observe from this some important practices for how we think about our church discipline. And the reason I bring that up is if we go now to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, this was what was read to us. If you want to turn there or I have the passage on the screen again, we'll see that Paul seems to be tracking along the lines of cleansing as an unleavening process about Jesus, the Passover lamb, in the case of church discipline that's attached to the Lord's Supper and eating and drinking together. He puts it all together in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And you had heard it read for you earlier, but just by way of, of summary and review, the chapter begins by saying that there is a kind of immoral practice that is in your midst that is not tolerated by the world outside. This is like saying you can be a member of our church and, and take the Lord's Supper, but you abuse children. Oh, that's fine, fine. And it's like, no, the world hates that. Even the world would say, that's awful, you're going to jail. That's his point. But the church is accepting of that kind of behavior, and he's saying that this is awful. You are arrogant to believe and think that way. He just calls him out for that. He says, you ought to mourn. Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. Cleanse them out. In verse 3, he says that, look, I'm not there in present, but I am present in spirit. And when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved. Let us not forget that the reason for church discipline has always been salvation. It has always been cleansing for the sake of repentance and I believe that there is another way of explaining this interaction with Jesus and his, his disciples was that by saying it this way, by saying, well, whoever has dipped their hand in the cup, in the dish, that's the one who will betray me. Not only makes all of them realize that they need to examine themselves, but it also allows an opportunity for Judas to repent. I think it's gentleness. It's truth in love. If he would have just said, now Judas is going to betray me. There's the, the mystery, solved, point the finger. Instead, he is giving Judas an opportunity to examine himself too and say, 
Are you going to go through with it? I mean, imagine if he would have just said Judas. I think the rest of the disciples would have been like, well, no, we're going to keep him from doing it. He's allowing Judas to make the decision. Are you going to go through with this or not? In other words, part of the genius behind Jesus' approach is salvation. An opportunity for repentance. Instead of just explicit condemnation, even though it's worthy of that, Jesus is allowing, would you repent? And the fact that Judas did not repent, as we know, means that he is the classic example of an unrepentant sinner that goes on in their unbelief and rebellion against God and therefore needs to be removed. And all of that seems to potentially be in Paul's mind when he says these words in verse 6 and following, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that just a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Do you get the symbolism? The church of Jesus Christ, because of Jesus being our head and our connection to him, we are a new lump. Jesus is the new lump and loaf. We then are part of that bread. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 too. That when we're participating in the the bread, we are all one loaf and each of us are part of that loaf. And he is making that point clear here as well. And then he goes on to say, the reason that you are the unleavened bread is because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Make it clear and plain for all of you, you can come to the table today if Christ is your Passover lamb. If he has sacrificed himself for your sins, that is the only way that you are welcomed to the table. In that sense, the door is wide open to enter into the church. But it is only through the door of Jesus Christ that we should declare the good news of Jesus and enter in the fellowship of the bread and the cup. Therefore, verse 8, let us celebrate the festival, not with old leaven. And then here, notice the way he defines leaven. The leaven of malice and evil. That's the old leaven, a way of life. Thinking and behaving, not just theology and teaching, but the way that your mind is corrupted by the things of this world and leads to actual behaviors like malice and evil. The new leavened bread, the new loaf should be filled with sincerity and truth. And then Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. I love this point. He's not talking about a holy huddle that says, well, we can't deal and spend time with anybody that's a sinner. Then he's like, you'd have to leave the planet. All of us are sinners. Of course I'm not talking about removing yourself from all the sexually immoral people of the world. I want you to invite them to follow Jesus and be welcomed in. But rather, I'm writing in verse 11, he says, To you, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. This is an entirely different context. I'm calling myself a follower of Jesus. I'm calling myself a Christian. And he says, if anybody bears the name of a brother and he is guilty of sexual immorality, but not to just single one sin out as if this one's the worst one out of all of them. Also, we could be talking about greed or idolatry. 
or reviling or drunkenness or swindling. With these people, meaning I am a Christian, I love Jesus, at the same time I do not repent of my sin. That kind of person is the person that Paul has in mind, and he says, with such a person, do not what? Say it. Do not do what with them? Eat. Why does he say eat? Because, as we have just gone over in our mini-series on the Lord's Supper, one of the central aspects of church life in the early church was doing this Passover meal every week. A cleansing process, a meal of fellowship, a unifying around the gospel. It was a meal. Don't eat with such a person, meaning do not allow them participating in the Lord's Supper. I think that's the best way to understand what he is saying, especially in light of all that we've seen in the Bible in this message. For what have I to do with judging those outside the church? Is it the church's job to go around and act like, we've got the truth, all of you are wrong, and we're going to condemn and point fingers? That's what basically I feel like half the people in America think the church is. The ones that are the holy huddle, that got it right, the supreme righteous ones, and all they're doing is telling everyone why they're wrong and we're right. But in fact, what we see is that church discipline, as offensive as it may seem, is actually an act of love for salvation and not to judge the outside world, but to judge those inside the church, the brothers and sisters professedly. God will judge those outside. You let God take care of that. Purge the evil person from among you. Or as we said in our big idea, therefore, Embassy Church, we should practice church discipline when we take the Lord's Supper in the same manner and spirit that I think we've seen throughout all of these texts, with a heart that examines each of our own right down the middle. Could I be Judas? Am I being sincere or am I a hypocrite? Saying that I'm a follower of Jesus when I'm living very unlike a follower of Jesus. We should practice church discipline by actually telling people who we know are in unrepentant sin. Their hearts are not soft toward the gospel. Friend, you are barred. You should not participate in the bread and the cup. You can come to our church services. You can sit and listen to the Bible and teach and the teachings of God's word. But you should not. When we do the little bread and the cup, that is not for you. And as unloving as that may feel to many of us, what? outside imposed structures and societies being enforced on your individual identity and expression? I tell you, it's the most healthy thing we could do as a church, and I recommend that we continue this practice for the sake of the health and growth of Embassy Church to honor God's word and to fulfill what seems to be the trajectory of what Jesus is doing in Matthew 26. So, the best way to conclude this message seems to be to practice the Lord's Supper and eat and drink together in a worthy manner after we have examined ourselves and know that each of us, if we're taking the bread and the cup, it is not because we had a stellar week. It is because no matter how poorly you performed, Jesus Christ has performed perfection as our sacrifice on your behalf do you repent of your sin and trust in him? Then you are welcome to come and participate.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your son Jesus as our sacrificial Passover lamb to start a new way of living and thinking as a community and as a church together. We want to pray that your spirit will convict anyone here today that is living in hypocrisy and that they would not take the bread and the cup if they are sensing that they are unrepentant. For those that are here today, Father, that are struggling with a very tender conscience, I pray that they would experience the joy and the liberation of Jesus coming and making it possible for your spirit to make us new people. And that they would receive the gospel message, not as a condemning finger pointing down at them as how poorly they have performed, but as a message of love and grace welcoming them to a table that they do not deserve, not because of this past week or any week. Father, we pray that this wonderful, beautiful combination of truth and love would permeate the leaven that is Embassy Church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.